<laughs> I was just wondering, like, why does this sound so weird? But mine's on, right? Yours is on, mine was not. But you had me thinking, like, well, why am I wearing these headphones? Uh, but this wasn't That's on. That's one gig. Can you imagine going two, <laughs> two solid hours? Like, oh God, there's nothing yeah. there. All right, we'll do, we'll do it again. Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. Meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a fisherman and a professional host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far and near reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures in wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after, a quiet mind and some time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm going to start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I have been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Let's go. Our guest today is Boots Allen. I have been looking forward to this one for way too long. Boots is a third generation fly fishing guide. Again, third generation fly fishing guide who each year guides 130 plus days on the waters of the greater Yellowstone area. He is the author of numerous publications, including Modern Trout Fishing and Catching Trout in All Conditions and Top Finisher in numerous fly fishing tournaments and contests over the years. Boots additionally hosts trips to destination lodges in South America, the Caribbean, the Pacific, and more. He gives talks at fly fishing events throughout the country. His popular fly patterns are available through Montana Fly Company. In addition to his guiding, Boots is also the advocacy and outreach coordinator at the Snake River Fund and recreational access to the Snake River watershed in Wyoming with an emphasis on partnerships, education, and public outreach. Boots is an extraordinary wealth of knowledge and is an amazingly well-respected guide, father, and husband, and currently lives in Victor, Idaho. Without further ado, please welcome Boots to the show. What's up, Boots? Not too much, Mike. Thanks for having me. That's a hell of a hell of an intro you gave me there. <laughs> well, thanks. It's it's all true. <laughs> I, I gotta say, before we even dive into it, um, I actually had this down for later, but just reading the intro, like, have you always been this much of a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, I mean, bug life, fishing, like natural habitats? Because every time I sit down, like the last time we had lunch, I, I walk away feeling like I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't this smart when I was 12. I can tell you that. <laughs> but but no, I mean, were you like into studies? Were you... Into... Stu yeah, well, I'd say I was a, a, a pretty solid student when I was... Uh, you know, when I was younger, I, but not really until I probably got into, uh, you know, as I was going into high school, that's when I was kind of a better student. Uh -huh. Um, to be honest, I was in remedial reading from like the, you know, for the fifth, sixth and part of the seventh grade until I kind of 
caught up yeah and whatnot but i uh um but yeah i've been uh just you know into researching re- researching stuff i've always been into history yeah um you know always been into certain parts of sciences i've you know, terrible at chemistry. Yeah. Um, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was into, you know, biology was probably my absolute best, uh, uh, you know, hard science, physical science uh, course. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of like the stuff that you just mentioned, like bug life and all that stuff that's, you know, kind of quote critical to fly fishing, you know, yeah. especially in the trout fishing world. Um, yeah, I kind of had had knowledge of it in 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 high school, but I didn't really start to dive into it until probably about my mid twenties. That's when I really started to researching it with with interest, with actual focus. Sure. And and would you say that that's in other aspects as well? I mean, because obviously a lot of times we're interacting. It's right. It's a it's a fishing, or at least a some some sort of fishing outreach or we run into each other and we definitely always bring up, I mean, as fishermen, fisher, all fisher people do, right? I mean, you <laughs> yeah. bring up fishing. Right. Um, but would you say in other aspects too? Uh, you mean outside of fishing yeah. or other aspects in fishing? Outside of uh, fishing, um, well. I mean, group- do, you, do you feel like you, you have, like, are, are your other interests as deep? As deep as fit? No, probably not. Um, okay. I, I, I'd say deep. But not, yeah. I wouldn't say as deep. Because, I mean, and, you, I mean, you still backcountry ski, yeah. mm-hmm. mountain bike. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, others too, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, those are, you know, if outside of uh, fishing and you know, particularly fishing as a, oh, you know, as a, as a, as an occupation and mm-hmm. a, a passion. And, you know, outside of that, it's probably skiing is the next thing that I do most. And after that, it's probably mountain biking. Um, you can see where I live here. This is a, a great place for for all of that. Uh, I, I did a lot of climbing, particularly for about a 15-year period. Huh. Uh, hung up some of that, well, pretty much all of that gear, primarily because um, things were happening in my life, just you know, business-wise, occupation-wise is probably what I should say, um, that... Uh, it, it was just so hard to line up time with my climbing partners to actually, you know, continue to climb. Yeah. Now my stepson, he's climbing. My daughter, she's now climbing and in the rock gym. Somehow I never got rid of $20,000 worth of climbing gear. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, uh, so I, yeah, I ended up holding on to the, that, uh, you know, all that gear. And so I'm actually, you know, able to get out there again and continue to climb. That might overtake mountain biking. I, I, I doubt it. And at the same time, I, I say, you know, mountain biking is a, you know, something I do. It, it's busy enough during what I'd call mountain biking season, Yeah, you know, that to really it's, I, it would be like, I can max out at about three dozen dedicated single track days in a year of mountain biking. And some of those are like a one hour ride. Sure. Some of them are two and a half hour rides. Yeah. So, um, I'd love to do it more, but you know, with, uh, uh you know, my current <laughs> occupation time wise kids, it's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's tough, but yeah, certainly ski, you know, skiing, I've, you know, grew up skiing here, grew up, you know, skiing at Jackson mountain resort. Yeah. Um, growing up skiing here, Jackson mountain resorts, the one you went to, to learn how to ski. 
because Snow King, our little town hill, was yeah. just way too damn steep, <laughs> you know, for a three-year-old. So, uh, so that's where we, we learned to ski, and then we graduated to uh, to Snow King, and then you know, right there around seven, eight, nine years old, then we'd graduate back to the the upper mountain at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, and and you know, and you know, we do a few days a year going over to Grand Targhee. And of course, living in Victor, Idaho, that is now my, you know, my sure. family's mountain. You know, it's a, a wonderful mountain. We, we were trying to do both. And uh, finally, the five-year-old turned six years old and it's completely out of reach yeah. financially. You know? I mean, yeah, it's crazy. You're, you're, you're dumping 10 grand into yeah. skiing and ski gear and, and passes yeah. every single year. So it's a, uh, it's, um, but it, I, I would say after, after fishing, skiing is the thing that I uh, probably, probably do the most. And I mean, I think it's important to note, right, as time is, seems to be the issue with a lot, at least for me, I'm, I'm saying right now, but I'm assuming maybe it's the same. But both of those things you can do by yourself and yeah. right in climbing, you need to be with someone. Yeah, at least, you know. Someone like myself, you know, you, yeah. of course, you know, I've, I've never been a free climber. I've never gotcha. been a solo climber. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's never going to happen. I mean, Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been up, you know, the grand, you know, fortunately in my life three times. Oh, wow. Um, that's huge. But I've never led. Yeah. Know, that's, I'm, sure. I don't have those kind of skills. I mean, I would say, you know, one of those times I led a couple pitches, mm -hmm. um, but that's about it. I'm not going to be the, the guy, you know, lead, you know, leading folks up, leading yeah. my party up. That's going to be someone that one of my climbing partners will do because my climbing partners have, you know, quote one more experience and two, they just get to do it way more than I do. Yeah. Well, that's, know? that's three. Thinking about, I think it would be, I, I, bounce around this all different ways and one would be to catch up on what's going on currently and then if we can even though it is going way back but um i mean i i've already mentioned one of the things i think about all the time is is your intellect is it's always like impressionable to me um and i think it's it's pretty amazing and and the other thing i think about too is like you know as a transplant who moved here and you know, 2000, it's, it's all, I always daydream about, you know, when I run into like yourself or Byron or someone and I'm like, what, what was it like? You know, or like I was talking to Murphy about it the other day. Like mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, he showed me a photo of like the town back then. And, and so maybe we, we start with the current stuff. Cause I do have some questions sure. there and then go, go way back and then, and then, bring it if, if that sounds cool to you that sounds cool maybe we'll go full, full circle and just so your listeners know because they can't see me <laughs> i'm blushing right now so. well it it is true though man i mean it i i don't know there's there's and maybe not enough time in point are you still keeping that this pace up because i mean you're you're at a pace that's that's wildly impressive yeah uh yeah uh i'm glad you mentioned that because in that in that bio you read it said a you know, hundred. I think it said one hundred and thirty plus days. Yeah, it's, it was an outdated bio. It's, it, it <laughs> there was a three year period there where it was about one hundred and sixty five to one hundred and eighty five. I think wow. I maxed out at one hundred and eighty two one year. Wow. And my uh, my thought about it was as I was doing that was you know one we we truly we have a legally we have a year round fishery here, mm -hmm. um, and so. 
you know, some outfitters, some guides are guiding in the winter. Now, winter, it's small, but yeah. it that's how I was able to get to the 165 to 180 mark yeah. was because of uh because of that. And that allowed me to take these these, you know, days off during the summer that, you know, 20 years ago, forget about it. You know, I mean, I you had to work. You had sure. to just go for broke. And um and and then those shoulder seasons got quite a bit busier. You know, the, it, you think about the Snake and the South Fork, you know, you know, two of the primary rivers I guide on, I mean, March, April, October, November, God, those are freaking fantastic. The only thing that you could, at least in this region, that you could put um, put near them or over them would be something like the Henry's Fork. That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty much pretty much it. And I remember when I was growing up, boy, October, if you could get six trips in, that was a big deal. You could, yeah. if you could get six trips in April, if you could get a half a dozen trips in, it was a big deal. And, you know, there, there were years here recently that if I, if I didn't take a day off in October, I, I could conceivably be booked the entire month, at least the first three, yeah. three weeks of it. Um, and so I was able to um, make, kind of maintain that pace because, uh, one, it's kind of year-round, mm-hmm. and because of these shoulder seasons. Sure. And, and so that gave me this chance in, you know, the what I'd call, you know, the hardcore months on, on the two primary rivers I guide mm-hmm. on, but you got to throw the green and the new fork and the salt and Yellowstone in there, too. Sure. It's a great time to be uh, on all of this is June through September. Um, and you know, I was able to maintain the schedule of about 10 days on four days off. Mm-hmm. And what was so great about that is meaning, meaning 10 days t- 10 in days a working. row. Yeah. 10 days okay. working yep. and four days off in a row, in a row. Yeah. Okay. And that's how it would be. And I just kind of set that up and, and, you know, always strategically place it to where my four days off are going to be during the, you know, one of those four days off stint, 4th of July, going to have that four day stint yeah. off there. Because uh, this place is a blast on the Fourth of July. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Quite frankly, I don't think the rivers are that much of a yeah. blast on the Fourth of July. They're just <laughs> wickedly crowded, and you know, paddle boards and inner tubes and stuff are going yeah. downstream. Um, but um, and that you know, was working. It was working pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the key there, you know, the, you know, these are long days when you're working. You know, it's you know, from where I live to the waters I'm going to fish, and then coming back, it's you know. 12 hour day at times. So that first of the four days off, that's the day I mow the lawn and do the laundry and little doodads around the house. And it's just these three days of fun, you know, uh, going to city of rocks to climb, going, uh, going fishing, you know, going up to, uh, uh, Oh, let's say going down to Masker rocks and fishing for carp and bass down there. Sure. Um, you know, and then you get three dedicated days to do that. And then you start that, start that trend again. Um, but it just turns out now, you know, I'm, I'm 52 and that pace was really hard to keep up. Sure. Even with all these ample days off. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was, uh, just a little too, uh, too difficult. So, and I always said that if I didn't, uh, you know, if I, if I, if I wasn't working as a guide, mm-hmm. I would do, um, and came came available yeah and that's you know how i i became associated with the snake river fund doing uh, advocacy and outreach uh coordination and so that's allowed me to drop my 
guided days to about 120. Well, <laughs> just still just a buttload of trips. Yeah, no, that, it's still the whole thing. I mean, that that's that that pace. I mean, I, I, I guess it's worth mentioning, right? To maybe a young guide who's aspiring, you know, and this might be listening that. That that's a, that can only be done with like you said these years of grind, yeah, and cultivating clientele, and making the right matches. It's not, it's not something that goes without a, a lot of sacrifice in the in the decade prior to it. You know, yeah, without question. Yeah, there there's no there's no uh, there's no question that that's the that's the case. You you do, man. You know, for me. It was those first fifteen, if not twenty years, mm-hmm. of you know, quote paying your dues. Sure. I guess you'd say, um, and like you said, cultivating that clientele, mm-hmm. and that's you know, here, that's what really drives things. You know, when yeah. when you're thinking of these rivers here, the Henry's Fork, the South Fork, I think you can throw the Madison easily into that. Mm-hmm. A lot of waters in Montana, uh, the Snake. Uh, the green and the new fork, Yellowstone, uh, so much of it is driven. Success is kind of driven by that that clientele, those guests, those guests you get back over and over and over again. Yeah. And some outfitters, that's how they, uh, that's that's how you move up sure. within the hierarchy. Is if you're getting those return clientele, then that's uh, that's that's how you move up. You're not booked on this day, but you're available. You'll probably get that trip. Fitzcent, where I tore my uh um i didn't tear anything i popped my hip uh basically came dis dislocated wow it didn't become the bo jackson thing where that that blood flowing ligament or tendon whatever it is popped i think it was the ligament that popped on him and Mm -hmm. then blood flow wasn't uh going into the hip um i uh tore an acl uh playing rugby uh had a uh a torn M- MCL. So you can tell this is all lower body stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and so, you know, as I, as I, as I'm getting older, you know, you can, you kind of feel that thing in the hip. It's like, you know, it used to be like fatigue, but you could always pop through it. Now it's like, eh, yeah, it's a little painful, yeah. you know, I'm doing a trail run or, or something like that. Um, you know, you can, you can kind of feel that, that stuff. Um, but you know, rowing wise, you know, it, the, the real stuff that harms, guides and just passionate anglers who are going to be behind oars yeah you know that that's you know the back the shoulders um the elbows it's going to be all that upper body all that upper body stuff yeah and uh i i've done well um you know but i'm comparing this to guide friends of mine who just they you know they've had to quit because of it you know and uh um, but if uh, if there's one thing physically that has recurred, and I'll say this minimally, but when it happens, it, it's impactful, is um, on the outside of the elbows, there's that, yeah. that, what is it? It's that tendon. And it's your classic tennis elbow. Sure. Uh, uh, condition that, and it's, uh, there's a wonderful guide who was kind of a mentor of mine named uh, Gary Wilmot. He he tore that thing basically off. Wow! And you know had to have it surgically repaired. And you can feel it, you know, and it's uh, uh, it. You can do things so that's not debilitating. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was something. It first happened in 2011. That's when I felt it. Um, I had to wear those you know those arm straps in yep. order to get through. But I was able to. Uh, you know, I went in, saw a doctor. 
the doctor forwarded me to a, a great physical therapist. He said, that's, this is what you got to do. This isn't going to be a medical thing yet. Yeah. And that these exercises, basically this, <laughs> this, this, this regimen. Was it um, like a ball or like a? No, it wasn't a ball. It's a, a thing called a Therabar. And so if you think of like the Swedish ball that you do workouts on. Yeah. Um, the, the, the company that I guess developed that or, um, that, or the company that, um, cre- uh, you know, sells the most of them. Yeah. There's, there, they also have this, uh, device called the Therabar and it's this thick, um, <clears throat> it's this thick bar and I don't mean to gross it. It almost looks like a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, uh, it, it rotates. I can grab it like with my right hand. Oh, I, yeah. Take okay. the other end and, yep. and twist it. And uh, it's essentially what you're doing if you, you know, if you played sports and you're in a, uh, uh, you know, in a weight room. One of the, uh, uh, one of the techniques that you use, use at times was called a negative. Mm-hmm. And so you'd, you know, say you're doing a, a bench press and you're pumping out eight of them, and when you get to that seventh one you'll lower it down incredibly slow mm-hmm. and then you might need a spot to get it back up to the eighth one and then you let that down incredibly slow that's that's what it is that's what it was is it was you're 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 twisting this in a slow motion way and having uh what they call negative resistance huh. and the catch there is that you have to be you just you have to be dedicated to it. Yep. You know, you have to stay and, on it. And I, I'd say I'm quite dedicated to it, but mm-hmm. it's flared up two more times since 2011. And those two times, it's because I took six months off of doing that. Yep. You know, and then boom, all of a sudden, you know, you're in the thick of the season. It's like, ouch, that hurts. And you have to write it out. And you have to write it out. And it's so much so that it's, um, it can get bad enough to where, you you can row and you feel it, mm-hmm. but if you have to cast, um, it really? it can be painful. I mean, hmm. it, it can be painful. I remember that with you know two guys you know Jeff Courier yeah. and Tom By. Um, we went and fished a place I previously mentioned, Massacre Rocks, mm-hmm. um, and I basically stayed behind the oars the whole time because it was so bad. I really the the cat it's just the casting was ineffective. Wow, yeah, yeah. and so it's just it's key to kind of stay. You know, stay on on that, but that's kind of the only uh, the yeah. only thing that's. And I mean, you know, I'm I'm happy and I'm fortunate, yeah, because you know, I got you know lots of friends who've had to go under the knife and be down for six, seven, eight months, yeah. and uh, I've been able to, uh, uh, you know, kind of yeah, power through it. That's impressive. Um, I mean, the the uh, the pace, right? I mean, that's a. I mean, scaling down to <laughs> to one twenty is impressive. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. You know the Snake River Fund. It's 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 just cool to me because it's it's this notion that keeps popping up of like full circle, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you grew up here. Um, you you kind of cut your teeth on these waters, and then you've been working on them for a long time, and now you're working to protect them. Yeah. And that's just that's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool and. What, um, how, how has it been? You know, I mean, cause that's a, it's a new position as of when again, that was, yeah, that was just, uh, what, six and a half months ago was my, okay, my cool. first day. It, it was basically, it was the beginning of January and now it's July. Mm-hmm. Um, it started just after the new year 
And uh, it's been very good. I'm enjoying the position. There's a certain amount of flexibility with mm-hmm. the position. You know, I'm, I live about, oh, 27 miles away from the office, sure. which is nothing except in the summer with the traffic or in yeah. the winter with the roads. It's a, it's a longer haul. So yeah, there are times I can do uh, work remotely and the mm-hmm. rest of the staff, uh, they, they will do work remotely. Uh, it's still great to be in the office. Um, not so much, you know, more than t- from time to time. Yep. Um, so yeah, I am in there. Uh, I think the, the, the nice part of it, what I'm really enjoying about it is the, the heavy duty research I get to do into certain issues. So, uh, on the snake river, uh, diversion law and diversion history and diversion policy, uh, we're going to start to put together potentially a, a database um, that, that the fund and the public can just go to and, and see that, uh, and look at it and, and it'll be readily accessible. That's important because, you know, here on the snake, yeah, it's mostly public land. The vast majority of it's public mm-hmm. land. The vast majority of the other tributaries are public land, but there is private land sure. and they, they got water rights. And so diversions are, are put up and every little now and then a diversion will be put in that, uh, is uh, withdrawing water or obstructing a portion of the channel that it's not legally uh, allowed to do. Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, you know little items like that, issues like that that I get to do heavy duty research on. You know as well as you know it, as well as a number of others, perhaps too many. <laughs> yeah, that I, I can't really <laughs> name them um, immediately. So there's that. Uh, the other thing thing is. Uh, um, you know, we, we got these meetings with Bureau of Reclamation, uh, BLM. Um, you know, they're, they're meetings I always got to go to, National Forest Service. Meetings, you know, I, public meetings, game and fish, you know, meetings that you, uh, as a member of the public, they're open. I, I would go anyway. Yeah. But now I'm being paid to go to them. So that's, that's kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. And I pay just as much attention now as I did when I was a member of the public. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's... That's cool. And the, um, and so like one thing that popped into my mind was, you know, for people listening that maybe aren't intimately familiar with the snake river, right. There was a recent kind of issue where, um, because we were in a drought cycle and we got a lot of snow, they wanted to fill in the reservoir. So there was a, there was an issue about dam, you know, release, um, as someone maybe who isn't as, you know, up to speed on like the laws of it all, the one thing that struck me and would be, why is this happening? You know, so it, so, so sorry, I didn't explain it. So two, you know, 200 and it's 280 CFS, right? So the release from the Jackson Lake dam needs to be, at least 280 CFS to protect the upper four and a half or so miles of the Snake River. Um, below that, the tributaries come in, add more flow, and is kind of a natural protector, right? Um, so in that upper section, how with the amount of snow that we had in the mountains and we knew it was going to come down, could there be an issue? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a... That's a great question. So what it was, was 280 CFS is the minimal flow. 
mm-hmm. that they allow. And they're not necessarily, that's not a, a binding contract. That's not a... a it's, no, it's, it's a, a suggestion, it's, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like a, an MOA, you mm-hmm. could call it. Uh, MOU, perhaps. Um, and it was, uh, that was uh, something put together by Wyoming Game and Fish. Oh, and uh, and in the in fact, the Bureau of Reclamation started doing that prior to several years, I believe, prior to Wyoming Game and Fish actually producing that paperwork to them, and that was because of who the the ma- the manager of operations was at the Bureau of Reclamation. Now that's changed since 2016. So back to your original question: is is how okay? We got all this snow. Um, uh, you know, there's, I mean, there's kind of some still melting right yeah. now, you know, there's yeah. still the reservoirs are, are still taking in a decent amount of water, uh, you know, potentially an above average amount of water. Um, so uh, how did that happen? So the uh, entities throughout the upper snake river drainage and to a certain degree, the lower snake river mm-hmm. drainage. So in the Snake River in Wyoming, you know, potentially if you go way up above the dam, you're, you're getting into the 120 mile range. You know, it's, it's got some distance to it, but the uh, of all this water up here, Wyoming only owns about four percent of it. Four, yeah, four percent. So the rest of it is owned by irrigators in Idaho, as well as municipalities and uh, certain other entities will have. Uh, some, you know, quote, ownership, due, you know, for just in case of, flood, you know, for flood control issues that might, might mm-hmm. arise. Um, and so all these reservoirs were filling. And the last, so these reservoirs would be Jackson Lake, uh, Grassy Lake, the dams, uh, Island Park, the dams along the Henry's Fork, Palisades Reservoir, American Falls Reservoir, and then Lake Walcott. Um, and that's that's kind of what I described there as moving downstream along the Snake River drainage. And, and then you, below that, you get to what's called Milner. And Milner is pretty much right there where about, you know, uh, Twins Falls is, uh, Shoshone Falls as it's originally mm-hmm. known. So um, the any water that was going to spill over Milner Dam without being used mm-hmm. was basically water that couldn't be used by these water rights owners, the folks that, that uh, the irrigators. You know, so, so they look at it as wasted water. Wasted water, and legally they can sue the Bureau of Reclamation if they, if they don't, uh, if, they, if, if that water they don't isn't, prevent that. isn't yeah. used. Yeah. And so to prevent that, what they proposed was uh, limiting flows out of Jackson Lake Dam from 280 CFS, which is the absolute... Uh, requested minimum to suggested minimum to 50 CFS. Now 50 CFS that basically dries up a ton of water up there and fish can still, they'll feel that pressure change. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them. It's not heavy on tributary, on not tributaries. It's not heavy on side channels. So you, you don't run as big of a risk of, uh, fish and bugs getting trapped in these, you know, two side channels, basically. They can retreat, but there are otters that frequent that area. There are beaver lodges. Mm-hmm. They, need, they need water. Um, there's also Utah chubs. That's their preferred water up there. Bluehead suckers. That's their, They're going to be spawning up there. Mm-hmm. You can't spawn at 50 CFS. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a trickle. You will not be able to get a boat. I mean, maybe you can you know, get out and walk a boat down, but it's, 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 uh, um, 
you're just not going to have the water. If that little of water is going to seriously impact that four and a half miles. And the other issue, which ties into what I just mentioned, is there's a beautiful piece of water called the Oxbow Bend. Yeah. And so the Oxbow swings around and it's this wonderful place people stop they take photographs you see wildlife Dude, you people see. travel across <laughs> to, to, to take that yeah. photo I yeah mean. and you know it provides this reflection of uh mount moran this reflection of uh bivouac uh, uh bivouac peak which is just to its to its north um it's just it's you know when you got that calm day it just it looks like you're looking at a, a mountain and then one that's upside down it's yeah. it's absolutely stunning uh i mean you know, there's pelicans up there there's there's just there's so much life up there in that four and a half miles and it does you know ecologically have an impact so to deal with this they uh everybody put their heads together wyoming owning that four percent water that's what they dedicated it to. The four percent they owned, they would use it to guarantee two hundred and eighty CFS. Mm-hmm. And now that that dam's fully open, it's a two thousand CFS, uh, which is basically darn near average of what it would average about what it usually is this time of year, mm-hmm. close to it. You know, usually that whole time we we're at two hundred and eighty CFS. We're usually at four to five thousand CFS. Yeah. So uh, it's it's uh, it it was uh, crisis averted. It's yet another crisis that was averted before another crisis that occurred a couple years ago, as well. Um, there was a big change of leadership at Bureau of Reclamation. Um, that's what most of us are pegging this on. The way the Bureau of Reclamation was from about 1984 until 2017. Mm-hmm. was a completely completely different mode of operation. The way it's being operated now is what it was like before 1984. And before 1984, Jackson Lake Dam could be shut down to 50 CFS. Wow. And, and it was. And, and it I'm was? Not, yeah, not saying every single year, but you can go back and look at that USGS data. Sure. I was like, yeah, 1977, 50 CFS all winter. Wow. Oh, wow. 1981, 50 CFS. All yeah. Winter long. And, we, and we should clarify CFS, cubic feet per second. Correct. Yeah. Discharge. Um, yeah. But the, the water law thing, I mean, I, I don't want to go there because we could, I mean, we, we could find ourselves here in five hours still, <laughs> okay, still talking about this. It interests me, right? And I haven't done any research on it. So is there is there a good, like, resource out there you know on I mean, let's just take the snake river i mean mm-hmm. and you i mean obviously you just talked about how you're going to start providing these these things for people to access um and yeah. i'm assuming some of that is going to be you know like for instance if this situation rises up again that'll be education you know outreach um that will be accessible for people to just try to inform themselves, greater Yellowstone. Been everything I've looked at uh, through the Snake River. Uh, the vast majority of everything I looked at has been uh, federal documentation, uh, federal documents mm-hmm. and state documents. Um, Idaho has some, some yeah. uh, re- but it's all hodgepodge stuff. You got to just go out and grab this, and grab this and time together. Your best resource, because the people who know the most about it, at least nationally for this reg- region, would be... Uh, uh, Trout Unlimited yep. and uh, American Rivers 
Those are the two organizations. National organizations have a heavy presence within the Rocky Mountain West and a heavy presence within the Snake River yeah. drainage. Um, that's, I've turned to them. I, I haven't even had to turn to them at times. I mean, I would attend a meeting and they'd say something, make a statement, and it's like, holy smokes, I had no idea that yeah. that was the case. Great example of that is uh, uh, 1987. Um, and, and it kind of extended beyond 1987, but um, there was a uh, uh, upper Snake River. Well, it was more of a Snake River. I can't remember the name currently. It's, uh, it was a um, documentation about where the water was going to go within the Snake River. It's a federal, federal document. Hmm. Um, and uh, who had the rights? It was a very thick. You could literally, I could, I could find my neighbors in Teton Valley because the Teton is a, uh, is a tributary sure. of, uh, of the Henry's Fork, which then flows into the snake. So, you, so technically a tributary of the snake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, you can find anybody, huh. anybody who has those water rights. Great. Th what what I, I found, what occurred during this whole uh, process, and that's what it was, it's a process. I'm putting an article together for uh, uh, the Drake mm -hmm. um, regarding this, but... Um, the Upper Snake River drainage has to send 487,000 acre feet of water downstream, not for irrigation or municipalities or anything, simply for the mitigation of the lower Snake River dams to help move salmon and steelhead downstream hmm. through those dams. Um, and it, what that comes from is a 1895 treaty wow. signed between Governor Stevens of the Washington Territory at the time and the Nez Perce tribe. And it's the first time I know of here in like 1990s, mm -hmm. early 2000s, that all of a sudden the federal government actually recognized native tribal rights to water. <laughs> and what did the tribe decide to do? Shouldn't surprise us, should make us very happy to dedicate that water, not for, you know, not for crops, mm -hmm. not for municipalities, but for their, probably their most, historically their most important part of their life, which was salmon. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they ate. That's how they got through the winters. It was the equivalent of bison, buffalo here in the, in the Plains states. Yeah. Um, and that's what they, that's, that's basically what they, uh, what they use it for. And, yeah. they, and so it was recognized and it was 487,000 acre feet. And that's what they're using it for. Um, unfortunately it comes from up here. Yeah. That's where it's coming from. And so that water spills over the dam that could be used for irrigation. And it goes down to help, you know, fish that I love, you love salmon and steelhead. Yeah. And if those dams weren't there, that's 487,000 acre feet of water that can be used somewhere else. And that's yet another. That's the impact those dams have way the heck up here. We're we're a we're a thousand miles away from those dams. I think we're, yeah. we're a long way. <laughs> um, I've driven by them. Yeah. Um, they're they're way hell. I went to uh, undergrad school kind of near them. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're having that impact way up here where we don't even get salmon and steelhead. They never made it up this this high. You know, because of natural barriers, and yet those dams still have an impact. Um, 
impact on area. That's a that's a broad synopsis of the issues yeah. that we're going through. Yeah, I I, I gotta try. I, I'm not saying I'll make it, but try try to deep dive into that document because that might help explain a, a ton of the questions. Yeah, and it's and you have to deep dive. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a thick, <laughs> dense piece of work. Well, I feel like, and I don't want to be doomsday, right? But I do feel like this is the start of heading in a direction that could lead into crazy paths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's private entities or state law um, starting to really enforce water rights to a level that, I mean, who, who knows? I, I'm not going to go there, but yeah. it, it is. Well, anyhow, well, th- thanks for that. And then on the part of it, we we talked, you know, it was it was I didn't know the history and then I went back and looked at it of the Snake River Fund, you know, I didn't realize until you told me um that that was basically created out of you know preventing you know how do I say this? It was created out of keeping the Snake River Canyon or, or and other portions of the river open for free access to all. Yeah. Right? I mean, is that a decent that, summary? That's exactly why it was started. And so after we talked about it, when I was very quick to say, like, need to start charging. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, may, maybe it was too quick, but I, I started to think about that legacy and that is an amaz- amazing legacy. As we spoke about, things have changed. Yeah. Where we are at a point where, something needs to change because as you stated at certain times on the river, it's, it's wild out there now. And for, for good reason. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, it's an unbelievable river. So, but, um, you know, in your position, that has to be an interesting, an interesting place to be because there's going to be public hearings, right. On whether or not people should have to, you know, pay to access parts of the river. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're in a public comment period right now. And, and quite frankly, Snake River Fund, um, we haven't taken a position. Sure. And uh, it's... Uh, yeah, that was definitely just my position. But yeah. Absolutely. It's, yeah. The National Forest Service is proposing this. Um, we've gone now over 20 years. But when they wanted to start to charge, uh, folks, this was back in 1988, 1989, mm-hmm. Snake River Fund was created, and we've, we've held that off for, you know, closing in on 25 years. Um, but as you just said correctly, it, we're just in a different era now. I mean, yeah. there, there are 200,000 people, you know, 10th or so. Of folks, S sites, the roads. I mean, the speed with which I have to drive down to Astoria boat ramp is absurd. It mm-hmm. is just a rutted mess. And the Forest Service just doesn't have the money. They, mm-hmm. And they, I mean, they're, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know how much they get paid, but come on. It's yeah. just like, God, what a thankless damn job. There have been uh, National Forest Service, uh, I, I, I don't want to call them law enforcement. They have the authorization to write citations. Mm-hmm. And they've been, there's been two of them that have been physically attacked by guests down there in the past uh, 15 years or wow. so. Maybe, maybe a little bit longer, perhaps. But, um, and it's just a, uh, it's a madhouse. There's, there's a lack of enforcement. 
Um, there's lots of upgrades that need to be made. And uh, the way that the Snake River Fund was able to hold off on public fees mm-hmm. was get benefactors from throughout the area mm-hmm. who believe in this mission. And we live in a very generous part of the, the world. And we have people that are... are that really believe in a lot of the things these nonprofits are doing. We're one of them. Um, that money is used for that. You basically quote supplement, um, the national forest in, in certain ways. Uh, the outfitters, particularly the whitewater outfitters, they have stepped up big time contributing money, you know, a buck ahead. And mm-hmm. you just, you know, the, the amount of people they're pushing down yeah. the river and that can go to the South, the, uh, go to the, uh, forest service, to um, you know, to assist with you know, uh, basically maintaining and upgrading uh, certain access sites, paying uh, for fees. But what what I'd say is that you know, you st- Grand Teton National Park it gets a heck of a lot of visitation on that river. It might be two hundred thousand for all I know. I'm up there just as much as I am down in the forest. Um, you go up there. Uh, you got to have a boat permit if you're going to be on the water. You know, you, you have to have a boat permit yeah. and that's, and, uh, and so th- there are these fees. I go to the South Fork of the Snake River. I have to have a parking pass at those sites, you know, yep. and the, you know, the rivers like the, uh, well, like the snake, but in, in the forest service, uh, area rivers like the Teton, um, they're just getting overwhelmed and inundated and it's time for the public to, to step up. If you want to go and play, pay for it. I mean, it's going to be, you know, these, these upgrades you're going to see with, with restrooms and seating and, and better access roads and parking. Boat ramps. Um, It's going to, yeah. yeah. I mean, for God's sakes, there's AEDs that are down there that you can use. That stuff ain't cheap. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's, uh, you know, the public, needs to step up. I think most of the outfitters, particularly the whitewater outfitters have stepped up major down there. Um, it's time for the rest of the public to step up. Um, yeah. Well. It'll be fascinating. Cause I mean, how long is the public comment process going to be? I mean, is it September 1st? Um, so we're essentially uh, six weeks away. Okay. It's, it's short and the word really isn't out yet. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I mean, I did, I, I did just read about it, I think yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. um, um yeah, well, that's. I mean, I, I, I do just. It's, it's, it's pretty cool that a you had the foresight that you know these are the two things that would offset you know, person. <laughs> and um, I just think it's really cool and it's commendable. So, it's. Um, I mean, you know, one other thing that popped in my mind that, and I'm feeling it a little bit. I, I would be curious as to you. I mean, there's no doubt this was heightened by COVID. I mean, right, we live in a very special place and you can't blame people for wanting to be a part of it. But it came in hot. It came in fast. Um, Do you feel like that's starting to wane at all? Because I feel like it is a little bit. And maybe that's other, but... Yeah. No, 2000, uh, when they opened the doors, pretty much, what opened the doors here, you can say Jackson Hole, the town, and the surrounding communities, definitely Teton Valley where I yeah. live, uh, definitely Star Valley. 
down south. Uh, we had about a two and a half month closure. We were, we were, you know, quote closed from March to a- April, yeah, 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 middle of March into it was in the middle of March, and then what really caused the opening? What caused the opening was the opening of Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park, mm-hmm. and when that happened, it was a damn flood of humanity. Right, records. It had to be. It, it, I mean, it was. It was major. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. It 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 had to have been for at yeah. least June, July, August, September, yeah. and probably October. Uh, a great example I would use of of mine. My total number of trips in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost I lost two and a half months. And granted, I was one great thing here. We have such great local guests that we take out on the water constantly. They live here. Mm-hmm. That really helped. Um, during that period when it was, was closed to a point where I was making too much money to actually get unemployment. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of a blessing and a curse, but I was down 3%. I was down a grand total of 3% in terms of my trips from the previous year, which was a record year. Yeah, it was, it was down. Yeah. And Um, I feel like in the fly fishing world, you know, that it's, we've reached we've already reached the peak and we're starting to move down the hill a little yeah bit. and so it feels like and i've been telling my guests it feels more like 2019 now yeah and i've heard that quite a bit yeah that, that, um, that's what it feels like um which i i think is a a good thing and quite frankly business wise you know i know you know, a number of business owners, various business owners, <laughs> nobody's crying about it. Yeah, no. <laughs> nobody's I mean, like, they're, okay, it's, they're, it's, they're just had that sense of, of unsustainability if this was, was uh, happening. And at the same time I say that, though, um, we've got this major construction going on out at uh, Wilson Bridge that I have to travel through. Mm-hmm. I get to completely miss it in the morning because I got early mornings. I hit it on the way home unless I finish up early. Sometimes I'm able to pull that off. And... Uh, before that construction, we have traffic just backed up, you know, kind of going into town. Yeah. And when they, and that's about, you know, five miles away is Wilson Bridge. And when when they announced their, you know, construction plan and how it would look, I was like, well, this is just going to be backed up through town. We could be backed up into Grand Teton National Park. Um, and admittedly, um, I was wrong. It, the, the traffic flow was, has been just incredibly, it's been good. It doesn't, didn't feel like a difference from the previous, you know, almost, I'd say close to a decade, mm-hmm. if not a decade, but three days ago, you could feel it. And yeah. I felt it that day. And I felt it the day after that and the day after that. And luckily I'm here with you at Close to six o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're closing in. And if we can pull the go a little bit longer, I might be able to get. I had a, a late work day yesterday for the fund. And I finished up around eight o'clock in the evening. It was a breeze going yeah. home. Yeah. I got, it's, it's very strategic the it when, is. when it and happens. It, it's, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's your classic, you know, rush hour in the morning, rush hour in the afternoon. Yeah. That's what it I'm, is. I'm new at West Bank. I, I haven't really, I, I mean, I was, we, um, they cut that light in half. And so now I'm watching, you know, I mean, essentially there's, there is a point in time in the day, like you said, within, I think it's been a little bit longer but in the past week or so. And maybe that's why it's been better for you going that direction <laughs> is because they are cutting 
that. And so it'll yeah. it'll back up almost to the village. Yeah. With yeah. the Moose Wilson Road being Yeah, close. and see that's something I don't get to feel that often because you're you're up at West Bank. Yeah. Which is, you know, right up in the in the heart of Highway 390. Yeah. <laughs> you get feet you on. Know, I'm so rarely up there these yeah, days. Exactly. <laughs> so what you got to know that with the traffic. Yeah. Like. I'm sitting there like, what, well, what is, is essentially this? it's a cul-de-sac. It's the only way out. <laughs> exactly. You can't go yeah. north. You can't, you have yeah. to go south. Can't uh, go east or west. But I mean, there's good ways around it all. Like mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I now if if I need to do it and I'm have an obligation, I move the obligation and I either work or go to the village and ride a bike or something. I mean, there's, there's ways around it, but it is, it is challenging. Um, because I just, I don't know what the answer is on, on that side of it, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but again, the, the snake river fun stuff, I looked at, I look forward to getting more involved. Hopefully, yeah. you know, all of the fishing world gets more involved because as you, as we said, right, things have changed. Yeah. And so we do need to get yeah. involved. And, and it is a truly unique organization in that it, it's it's performing and i would say masterfully this balance of access and conservation yeah. that uh i think the board members and i used to be a board member the board members you know one of them in particular you know he was told by a member of the public that says if you guys are going in this conservation direction and you can absolutely fail and and that board member and i grew up playing rugby with him he's like no, we're not. We're, we're going to hammer this home, and quite frankly, we've kind of hammered it home. Yeah. We've done we've done great with with uh, conservation. We're the ones that fund the Hoback uh, um, the Hoback Gauge. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, well over half of it um, to, uh, to water quality gauge, so we can tell what's going on on the on the on the Hoback River. Um, you know, we've done great work up on uh, Spread Creek. We've done great work down on Horse Creek. You know, big spawning tributaries. And do these great uh, programs with uh, members of the Wind River uh, Reservation. <laughs> and, uh, and we do great stuff with the, we have a dedicated week to the Hispanic Latino community here for, the, for kids going into uh, eighth grade. That's awesome. Learn more about the river. And again, for a lot of these folks, I mean, it's their first time ever on, on a watercraft. Yeah. And so um, we've got, you know, gr- other great programs for kids. So it's a, uh, it's a, a really, really terrific, uh, terrific uh, organization. That I'm really happy to be a part of. Yeah, well, it's um, very commendable. And and transferring, uh, sorry, transitioning, you know, from that because we could we could again another we could keep talking about that. But um, another thing which I've which I just haven't had the time to to ask you. But I mean, the, your family history here. Um, and growing up here, you know, l- let's discuss that a little bit because that is, again, that's, that's uniquely cool. Okay. What year do you want to start with? <laughs> let's. <laughs> In the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, however you want to summarize let's, it, but I mean, it's. Let's start from the very beginning because yeah. I, I do have to do this from time to time. Um, but my, my grandfather, he was from the Indiana, Kentucky border area, moved here in 1927 Mm-hmm. Um, he had, uh, um, he was, uh, his, his father was a, basically a pipe fitter, mm-hmm. you know, true working class guy. My grandfather did really well academically. Um, Academ- and, academics in the family, see? <laughs> and, um, 
was going to be heading to a university uh, to study mathematics, which was his really, you know, what, what he was ex- very, very good at. And uh, back in the twenties, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're just a working class kid, to go to college was was a truly big deal. Um, he uh, before he was going to do that, he was wanted to uh, head out to Seattle. So he was a 17 year old kid had just graduated from and high what, school. What year again? Sorry, this is 1927. Okay. Um, and he was going to go to Seattle because there was a long lost uh, uncle and some cousins of his who he wanted to meet. That's so he cool. Was, he was basically hitchhiking yeah. across uh, the country. And if you ever seen the movie Field of Dreams, yeah. you remember the scene where they pick up this hitchhiker who's basically carrying his baseball gear and he's traveling mm-hmm. from town to town working and playing baseball before moving on to a, another town. And that's kind of what my my grandfather did. What was unique about him is he had he was left handed and he was a catcher and he had a left handed catcher's mitt. So basically, oh, wow. yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty wild. So he uh, and you know, he had a catcher's. Uh, I, I forget back then. If, I'm, I'm sure they were. I think it might have been probably a mask mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and so he, he had some gear and he would you know travel out and you know they finished up high school whatever middle of May. And he was heading out, working from town to town, and worked his way up over Togety Pass. You know, stop the the going story is from Teton from Togety Pass. You just get this incredible view of yeah. the mountains, and he's like, "How the hell am I going to get up through those damn things? <laughs> Jesus Christ! There's no roads down there." But he, you know, like so many of us, it just strikes you, right? He's yeah. Like, what they were working on was the long piece of riprap going along. Antelope, or not Antelope Flats, Willow Flats up to basically where Hermitage Point starts. Okay. That's what they were were working on. So being there, he had access to the lake. He had access to the snake. His jobs included, uh, as the lake was filling, he would be the ones going out, he, him and, and, and crew members would be going out there and removing the, uh, the, the trees mm-hmm. that were uh, being flooded by the water. Uh, you, you know, you've been up to Quake Lake and you've been mm-hmm. up to uh, Grovant uh, or Slide Lake. Yep. You know, you see those trees up there. On Jackson Lake, on Jackson Lake, they were uh, they were removing those. He would go down. I guess it was considered a, a bad deal. They were thinking that the, the flows were creating log jams that you didn't want, which are now considered just a great part of the Snake River. And he was they were going down and um, removing those. And in... Uh, 1932 just previous to this in 1930 the first real crew fishing guide and fishing outfitter uh, in the area was a gentleman named bob carmichael and he started in 1930 um this is the depression of course right yeah and so you think well who the hell's coming here well the rich people were coming here yeah you know, they still had the money sure you know, they could they could they could they could pull this off they could weather the storm so they were the ones coming here and bob carmichael was a one-man ship yeah. well, bob's busy for the next 17 days anybody else and there's this kid up in moran <laughs> uh, he fishes a hell of a lot you might want to might want to talk to him and so that's how he started guiding you know <laughs> he's guiding on his off days during the winter he was doing snow surveying so he was he was a year-round employee for mm-hmm. the uh bureau of reclamation and snow surveying meant you ski you'd, you'd ski up to these snow what are now snow tell sites sure you'd go up there and you'd measure the depth of the snow, and you'd measure the water content to get the actual uh, 
you know, to find out what the water content was. was yeah. And you do this once basically a month at various sites. Okay. You know, so one was Lewis Divide uh, up in Yellowstone. One was Togety Pass that we just mentioned. One was along the Teton Range that doesn't exist as a snow tell. You know, when, when we're doing backcountry skiing, we're using skins. Yeah. That those skis have the elk skins. No uh, way. The actual, the, the original. Yeah, the actual yeah. skins that you would you'd tack in. Wow. To, you know, you'd shave it down and it'd be stubble and it allowed you to climb. And of course, you weren't locking your heel in to make your descent like opera. Sure. Uh, but real, real skins. Real skins, which is where the name comes <laughs> yeah. from. And then you, you, know, you, you wouldn't remove them to make your descent. The, 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 the fibers would just kind of lay, but the hairs, the stubble would lay back and you'd mm -hmm. descend downhill, but you'd probably, you, you've probably made a descent with skins on. It's yeah. just, it's a, you can't turn. You <laughs> yeah. can't, you're just a, a stumbling mess, which yeah. is probably what, what they were too. Um, uh, but in the 1930s, as, as the 30s were going along, he was living in Moran. Moran was kind of a dying town at the time, uh, primarily because of the federal projects, uh, which had happened kind of before the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And the Great Depression brought on all these great federal projects that uh, um, allowed people to go out and work. Yeah. Um, he decided to move down to the town of Jackson, so a little bit, what is that, probably about 30 miles. Mm -hmm. Uh, where you had a school, you had a hospital, and you had a church, and yep. you had that stuff. Um, so he moved down there, and I was living there, and continued to do his snow surveying, and continued to guide um, on the river. And, and the river trips, you weren't in a boat, you were wade fishing. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what you're doing. Um, and you're up on the lake, um, basically in an outboard, outboard uh, craft, and he did that, and then in, I believe it was in 1945, he, somewhere in that interim, he stopped snow, snow surveying. In 1945 is when he decided to start his own operation as, a, as an outfitter. Mm -hmm. And so he started outfitting basically in 1945, uh, and that's when folks started to use uh, watercraft was basically 45 and 46. Some people say he was the first one. Um, uh, Vern Huser, a great historian on the Snake, on Snake River uh, Recreation, he says, yeah, he's probably the first one. I don't know if that was the case, but they were using the, you know, it's 1945, the war's coming to an end. You know it's coming to an end. You don't have to invade Japan. We dropped two bombs. Um, we're, you know, all of a sudden all these army surplus rafts, and that's what they used. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so there, it was... Uh, Rubber rafts, as far as the eye could see, although you know, he probably had six or seven guides on the river yeah. back then. Um, and so he built a uh, operation called Fort Jackson in the town of Jackson. If you drive by the Spence Law Firm, his building kind of looks like an old Western fort. That was the original Fort Jackson. Oh, wow. Um, and had a stockade in the back that you put all the, the rafts in. Uh, he had two vans, uh, buses that, you know, everybody would be going to the same place to fish you stack four rafts on one. This one's going from Wilson down, stack four rafts on the other. That one's going up to dead man's bar. And, uh, and it wasn't like it is today where you just had all these independent guides. Sure. Uh, and no one's independent here as a guide because of the permit system, but you know, there's independence among the guides. You have your own equipment. Uh, 
uncle, my uncle and my father, you know, took over the business and, and, uh, I started to work, uh, as a guide with them. And in, uh, 2003, Will Dornan bought those permits and I have moved to Will Dornan and Snake River Angler ever since. Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, that's about as cool as it gets in terms of, um, family history legacy. I mean, <laughs> that is, I'm sure you've been told that a hundred times, but to hear it like that, I mean, it's, it's pretty, uh, and, and were the, were the rubber rafts like if, if okay, these rubber rafts are going up into the park where those were just transportation to like fishing spots and then people would get out and fish or yeah, they definitely do that but you can see photos um so we you know newspaper clippings mm -hmm. you know some you know paper whatever in los angeles came up and you know did a story about it let's say it's 1952 or something mm -hmm. like that and uh and some of the photography of them fishing from the raft okay so, yeah, fishing from a raft sitting down very bare bones and basic it's a it's a 12 foot raft seven foot oars hmm. bench seating basically it's a it's a wood plank yeah three of them one the guide sits on one uh uh you know person in the stern is on a wooden plank another is on the, in the, in the front's on a wooden plank and you held them in by bungee cords along d-rings Hmm. And that's, uh, that's, and you just, you know, soup, you know, no frills, obviously, Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but super, uh, just uh, uh, maneuverable as hell because they're so short. Yeah, so I, small, I was thinking they like were going to be like, you know, 18 feet, but yeah, yeah, no, it was nothing like that. In fact, the, uh, you know, pulled up to your house, you have your South Fork skiff like yeah. for, for years. <laughs> it's the closest thing to those kind of rafts. Just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. You, you have to sit down to fish. There's yeah. so many great reasons to sit down to fish. Um, uh, uh, no, light as hell. I mean, I remember a skiff going down when it, my first year ever guiding, I was guiding, uh, I think Moose to Wilson. And, you know, there was a diversion up there outside of the park and a, a West Bank guide, you know, went down into it. Couldn't get back out of it. I was passing by. We landed. <laughs> he had one guest. I had one guest. So, you know, a South Fork skiff is so damn light. Yeah. That's what a, uh, that's what the, the rafts were. That's what made them uh, so great. My, my father never guided out of a drift boat because he just, he didn't think there was anything that could match him, match a raft. And so what, what year did you, or how old were you when you started guiding? I started guiding my, when I was uh, 20 years old. Okay. Yeah, and people think I started in high school. I kind of, I sometimes tell people I started in high school. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was 20 years old. Um, and uh, they just had a position for me mm -hmm. to, to do it, uh, just due to the loss of a, a, couple, a couple guides. And so um, I was able to start guiding. That was 1991, June 30th. That was my first trip. See, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, you remember that. Right yep, yep. I was yeah. able to, and uh, yeah, and back then, you know, so all my trips the first year were on the snake. Yeah. Um, uh, two years later, I was able to go and do my first trip on the green. Um, every now and then I would go and, and do a, a trip out at Crescent H. Um, I can't remember when I first started doing the Salt River. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, you know, what's great about it is there's just a lot of water. Yeah. Know, I've, just, I, I've always said, like, I mean, we are so fortunate. Yeah. I mean, and we just, and just, you know, you got one that's manages, a, you know, a couple that are manages cut, cutthroat fisheries. You got another that's pretty much manages a brown trout fishery. 
uh, you got lakes that are managed as lake and brown trout yeah. lakes, and and you go to you know others that you know have you know really good rainbow trout on them, and it's uh it's really uh, fortunate and they're all different. You know, you, you can't, you know, I, I don't fish the South Fork the same way I fish most of the snake and I sure mm-hmm. as hell don't fish those two rivers the same way I fish the green and the yeah. salt's different. And you just get to learn a heck of a lot more about, about fishing when you have all that variety. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something, I mean, it's always, it always comes down to the time on the water thing. You yeah. know I mean? It's like you, you've spent <laughs> arguably as much time on the water as anybody. And I feel like that's, that comes from that. Right. I mean, you, most people aren't, they don't know to change their style or to, but it's, it's very cool. Well, another thing growing up here, um, you know, so must've been so different back then. I mean, maybe not, I mean, I'm sure it was different for you because, but, but the, I mean, it's like now you ride to the, you, you get to the top of Snow King and you look down, it's a different perspective, right? It still looks really small. Yeah. Um, it's still, and, and relatively speaking, we are still out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, but what was it, what was it like for you to leave Jackson, you know, to go to school? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, um, it probably makes sense. But you know, when when uh, all my friends were going to University of Wyoming, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm out of here. Yeah, I'm out of Wyoming. Screw this place. <laughs> I'm leaving. And, you know, I headed off and went to uh, uh, Washington State. Mm-hmm. That's where I started going to uh, to school. Never any intention of truly coming back. Um, yeah, I, I'd always come back in the summers. Partly because I had this great job, but even though I would admit it, I was having so much fun here, and the, the summers were so much fun. Yeah. Friends here, um, you know, parties, you know, late night parties up Shadow yeah. Mountain or down Fall <laughs> Creek Road. Yeah, you, know? um, you know, we were, you know, it was about the time I started climbing. Um, you know, I was, you know, mountain biking on, you know, basically which were barely mountain bike trails back then going up cash creek and whatnot and just mm-hmm. basically a, a hard tail i think i got my first suspension bike you know front suspension in you know 92 or something like mm-hmm. that but it was just a blast it was fun you know the, the the fishing obviously was a blast um and so but at the same time my intent was to leave yeah um and and i i do think that's somewhat common yeah. At least when I, you know, because have friends with kids going to school, like that is kind of a, I'm getting out of here. Right. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. And I just, I mentioned that because, you know, there were friends I went to high school with who was like, oh, I'm coming back. Yeah. I'm definitely coming back. Yeah, that's they, interesting. They saw the opportunities that were here. And I, I don't just mean lifestyle wise, but, you know, there are financial opportunities here. Yeah. That uh, I didn't quite recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and perhaps didn't have an interest in. Um, and so, but yeah, I, uh, went through, but what really did it for me when I was like, I'm coming back here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wintering in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I wintered there from about 90, the winter of 93, 94 through the winter of, uh, 96, 97. And, uh, there was one summer and it was the summer of 1996 that I stayed out of Jackson and I stayed in Portland and quite frankly I had a blast in Portland Hmm. I hadn't 
absolute blast in Portland. It was a, it was weird back then in the Olympics weather channel. Is it 103, you know, tomorrow 103 degrees and next, you know, next day 104 degrees. After that, 102 degrees, I'm just sweating my butt up. <laughs> I was having a fun, part of the reason I was having fun, there was literally 15 guys and girls who I went to high school with that were living there. Oh, wow. We were just all, I mean, literally we were like, you know, one or two years separated. It was yeah. such a blast. But I came back to Jackson that July 4th and uh, was back here for a week. And just missing, and I was back here and just hanging out with all these other friends of mine. And you know, these, this was a year my friends started. Some of my friends started uh, paragliding. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember one of, <laughs> I was in town at a friend's house for a party, and he looked up in the air and goes, "Hey, there's Brad Watzabaugh." Flying by, like, and these guys I went to high school with, and, and you know, they went to, you know, they left to college. And some of them finished college and came back and others had, uh, you know, went to college and didn't finish. And, and some of them just stayed and, and God, they look so happy. They mm-hmm. just looked, they just looked at peace with themselves and everything. I'm like, yeah. I mean, and, uh, then the very next year I came back and stayed, it was the big flood year. It was the, the 97. Yeah. The yeah. winter of 97. Um, you know, you look at the TGR films and you read stuff in the magazines. It was a 700 inch winter. It was a massive, massive winter. Um, but uh, that's when I kind of made that choice to come back. I later went to graduate school. Yeah, because you went to Texas. Yeah, right? I went to University of Texas. Um, it was about three years later, but I was able to get linked up to, into a program where, you know, the. I don't, um, and that was in sociology, right? Yeah, yeah. Sociology was a, basically the Population Research Center, which is uh, 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 demographics. Mm-hmm. And so we had economists, we had sociologists like myself, we had uh, geographers, political scientists, just statisticians were there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was always able to come back here in the the in, in the summer, and then the, the the that was the first two years. The other four years, I didn't have to come back till the end of October. You know, I I I could be in Jackson working and having fun until the end of October. That's why I never went into, you know, $75,000 worth of debt for all that years of school, school yeah. because I was able to be here working and then, you know, be on a, you know, which is basically a research assistantship uh, program there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I didn't have to pay for tuition and they paid me a monthly stipend and whatnot. And uh, so it, it worked out really, really well. I'm, uh, did my research over in uh, Central Asia. So uh, originally it was going to be Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and the Kyrgyz Republic. Wanted to focus on nomadic, uh, or what I'd say are, are countries that have a, uh, there's a, a nomadic history there. Mm-hmm. Um, part of Russia is certainly part of that, but definitely Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, the Kyrgyz Republic, those those countries. Um and so I'd traveled to those, to Russia and, and uh, Mongolia prior to graduate school. And then during my pre-dissertation research that I would do, I would go and, and hit, you know, I got funding to go to these other places to see if my research would work. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyz Republic. I by then figured Mongolia might be a reach. Mm-hmm. Turned out to be Kazakhstan and the Kyrgyz Republic. So that was part of that three-month pre-dissertation research that I did. And then when I went over there for my dissertation research, 
uh, started at Kazakhstan and then worked down to Kyrgyz. And studying nomadic tribes? No. What? It, well, I mean, I guess you, you had to. That was going to be, you know, a minor part of the uh, of the research. It was a large, large survey done by what is called DHS. That's not uh, Department of Homeland Security. It's a Demographic and Health Survey. Hmm. And so, I with that, I was able to add additional questions to it and then have free access to all the data when it was collected. So I, uh, um, um, sorry, I went to these villages to do not the, the surveys, but to do the focus groups and interviews mm-hmm. with them. Now, of course the survey data is like really what matters, but the, the interviews and focus groups really assisted. Yeah. Um, in that, and it was true. One of the courses when I was in graduate school that really struck me was called uh, Integration of Quantitative and Qualitative Methodology. And that was being pushed at that time by like the World Bank and hmm. IMF, who were starting to think we're getting way too heavy on quali- uh, quantitative research. Yeah. We need, we need some interviews here. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and so courses like that kind of allowed me to get into it. A uh, second. And I came back uh, May 1st. Wow. I flew out of Jackson and yeah. then came back to Jackson and didn't touch that research until the following October when I went back to University of Texas and started the dissertation. Right, Worked right up until like August 24th and then jumped in my uh, Dodge truck at the time and drove down to Austin. Uh-huh. And uh, got there basically the day before classes started. And then uh, would get out around May, you know, whatever it is, the first week of May. And uh, May wasn't as busy as it is now. Mm-hmm. So I actually hung around Austin for about 10 days. And yeah. then made it back here in time for Memorial Day weekend, which is when, uh, you know, back then, the South Fork didn't open up until Memorial Day weekend. Yep. Um, and Yellowstone National Park opens up on Memorial Day weekend. So I was back in time for... for for those opening days. Yeah. Um, and that's how it was kind of the first two years. And that then the, and, and did that, did that, you know, pre dissertation, did that spawn the, um, like kind of interest in travel or, or had you, had you left the country a bunch prior to that? Cause that, that's a pretty big shift. I mean, <laughs> it's a big shift. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, you know, it's not going to Costa Rica. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, no, I'd started traveling just prior to that. I had, uh, what part of what started this whole thing is that I was a, I grew up because the era I grew up in, I was a Russophile, you know, mm-hmm. I was, a uh, kind of, a I uh, was really enamored with the, with the former Soviet union. Mm-hmm. A lot of that had to do with growing up in Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the iron curtain was falling at that time. The, former Soviet Union was breaking up. So living here in Jackson, you have climbers and you have skiers mm-hmm. and you have whitewater enthusiasts. And you're you're in those kind of those circles. Not that, you know, at that age I was in those circles, but they're like, God, we can we can go and hit that river in Tajikistan now. Yeah. You know, being in those circles and you know, people were talking about Kamchatka. People were talking about Mongolia. People yeah. were talking about the Ponoy Peninsula. Um, um, not the Ponoy Peninsula, Kola Peninsula, sorry. The Ponoy River on the Kola Peninsula. So people were talking about that. And this is when I first heard of Timon. Yeah. Um, 
and all that. And that's what really kind of, of sparked it. So when I first started traveling over to Russia and to um, Mongolia, it was to fish and to ski. Those are the two things that I wanted to do. A uh, very good friend of mine, she went to high school with my little brother. She was a Russophile like me. And uh, me and her were really, really tight. We were just incredibly good friends. Uh, she learned Russian. I was I was studying Russian. Do you speak Russian? Uh, I mean, yeah, like, at that you, time. Could... And by the time I finished my dissertation research, I was I, I would call myself borderline fluent. Wow. Now I'm conversant. Yeah. I've been kind of out of the circle. Sure. And, and we have plenty of Russian speakers here in Jackson, as you yeah. well know. Yeah, they never talk Russian to yeah. you. They get pissed off when <laughs> exactly. you speak Russian. <laughs> That's the worst so, um, part. Um, but yeah, I was... Uh, that's kind of the the reason I was going over to these places first. And, you know, full disclosure, and I think my dissertation committee members know that, the reason I picked Kazakhstan and the Kyrgyz Republic was because I wanted to go there and fish and ski. <laughs> that's yeah. what I did. So I got to fish for Taiman in, uh, in Kazakhstan and got to fish, and I got to ski, uh, um, uh, ski through parts of uh, the Kyrgyz Republic. That's amazing. Yeah. And but but had prior to that, uh, did you had you left? Had I mean you you had gone to Costa Rica or some other things, but you had never made a big, you know, travel like that. No, nothing like that. Not where it's uh, that duration uh-huh. and that you know, quite frankly, that type of isolation. Yeah, and, and they were pretty isolated. But when I say, you know, community based tourism in mountain communities of Central Asia, you're way the hell back there. Yeah. You know, we, you were way, I always wanted to do it where there's someone who could speak Russian mm-hmm. as backup. Um, because quite frankly, because, you know, s- some of the villages, they, they weren't really, even though they were former Soviet republics, they weren't, they weren't quite, there's enough people there that didn't speak Russian. Mm-hmm. It was like, at least have an interpreter along with me. And <laughs> at times it was like a good, have a subject who could speak Russian, but my, you know, my, I, there was, a, there was dialect and almost accent issues where I was like, what the hell is he saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And having someone else is like, you know, I could pay to be a backup for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and interpret. Yeah. It was, uh, um, it was worth doing, but yeah, nothing like that. And I, I haven't really done anything like that other than, you know, I, I guided down in Argentina for a couple of years down in Tierra del Fuego. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that, but those are three to four month stints sure. basically. So, um, but yeah, that's the, the time that I did these long, long stints o- overseas and, uh, they were a lot of fun, but they're also ancient history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you've traveled ever since. I mean. Yeah. And I've have had a chance to travel in, in full, you know, also admittedly as the, past you know of course covid really screwed some things up yeah um with me there was a christmas island trip that basically never booked and the guests got pissed off and the, the booking agent got pissed off and then i got pissed off yeah. and, um <laughs> just opened uh, yeah and yeah. it's uh you know it'll get back to what it is and it already is you know yeah i just haven't latched on to it you yeah know, probably, sure. you know, maybe make an excuse to you know hang out with the family yeah obviously but yeah since then i mean as soon as i finished up that dissertation research remember i didn't have to be back hell i didn't have to be back till the same you know i take it back those those last couple years i didn't have to be back until the till the january gotcha so that's when i started traveling to costa rica sure i just i had this time i had this load off my back i 
had these accomplishments, you know, academically that I'd finished. And I, uh, I was like, yeah, I'll go to Costa Rica. You and I both know Gary Beebe, mountain yeah. drift boat. He's got a home yeah, in Costa Godfather. Rica. Yeah. yeah. And he's, a, he's like, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about coming down there in uh, December for uh, a couple weeks before Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That's, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Dude, you can you know, stay at my place. It's going to be yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's great. We were hit in the morning and... <laughs> And we just, you know, siesta in the afternoon and go back out in the evening. <laughs> that is awesome. And that's what it, uh, that's what it was, you know, and then, you know, went to Panama and then, you know, I, I didn't really start hosting, uh, you know, trips with, uh, with guests until, you know, it was probably around 2000 and I think the first trip was 2014 mm-hmm. and then you know so it was rather late yeah um and you know, I had other friends who certainly were were hosting trips and you, you were hosting trips what by 2008 9 10 yeah my my actually first one was was 98 98 okay yeah, so there you Alaska. go yeah that was yeah. my first didn't it was didn't go that well but um <laughs> <laughs> but it was a uh, um but you know, it was just—it was just kind of immediate, you know. Yeah. Of, you know, I could rack in three trips and whatnot, and uh, at the same time, the whole hosting thing—I don't know what your experience is of it, but it's, it's kind of getting a bit more challenging. <laughs> you yeah, know, the, the, the lodges seem to be a bit more busier, a bit more demanding. Uh, you know, it used to be I could, you know, bring seven and I'd be the eighth guy. Now they're kind of asking for you got to bring eleven if you want that hosted spot. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, which is a good thing, I think for the lodges. Yeah, absolutely. There, you know? and, and I do feel like that part is cyclical. I mean, that, that is okay. because, right. Some people didn't, I mean, just because it's, it's the same thing that you were just explaining, I think is that, you know, you grew up here, you, you have all these experiences in the outdoors and that, you know, that's a natural lead into, well, what else is out there? And, um, there's a lot of people that don't have that. So I think that they, you know, even though I still traveled a little bit, you know, 2020 even, right. That some people might not feel comfortable until now. Right, yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like you're seeing, we're seeing that like delay. And then I do feel like it's going to become, a little bit back to normal. Okay, yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, and that's that's a good point too. And like you said, I mean that that's completely logical too. Yeah, the, there's just this delay. Yeah, you know, going yeah, on, you know? absolutely. <laughs> and um, another thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you're the author of four books. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to take a shitload of time. Making hundreds of dollars a year off those books. <laughs> Modern trout fishing, right? Mm-hmm, Snake. Yeah. Snake River through the guides of an angler. Mm-hmm. Snake River flies, and one one more. The other is uh, uh, finding trout in all finding conditions. Finding trout in all yeah. conditions. And do you of those? What's it like writing? I mean, I've always wondered that. I mean, did you? What's it like writing a book? Did you have a plan? Did you um, just start writing and then go back? And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what what was that experience when you first started? The, uh, uh, well, what I would say, so I was inspired to start writing, um, in, uh, the late nineties and, uh, I was dating this gal, um, and, but I was, re- <laughs> I was really into her sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> her sister and I were of the same age Yeah, and we were a bit more, I think, 
would have been a bit more a better of a pair. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, and you know we we really remained friends, but she was passionate about writing and pat and um uh, and and was a very good writer too. Um, and uh, she inspired me to start writing, and so I started writing um, uh, basically fly time mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Flight time, flight time. Yeah, still in stuff. It was just so fantastic. Um, and my, uh, you know, my, my family, they've contributed flies to the flight time world um, through the years. And so the, um, the, so there was that kind of that draw. And my early writings were about those patterns and the mm-hmm. evolution of those patterns. Um, and then it started to get more into, you know, other details of, of fly fishing. And I uh, wrote a, a, a story when, when my father passed away in 2003, I, I wrote this piece for the Drake. And uh, I wrote that basically on the choo-choo train going f- in through Kazakhstan. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I had That's my cool. little laptop off and, you know, I'm staying in one of the sleeper cabins and wrote it up and. Uh, and I finally had, uh, you know, eat, uh, you know, dial up connection yeah. with, my, with, my, with my damn, uh, computer, which two months later, I sent it to, uh, Tom by yeah. at the, the Drake. And he's like, yeah, I'm proud of you for writing this. That's the first time I wrote more of a story. Uh-huh. You know, it was the first time I ever truly wrote as a story that wasn't like a, you know, a how, how, how to, to, how yeah. to, you know, when to, where to yeah. type, type thing. Um, and so that's uh, it was. That's when I kind of started to, you know, okay, this is another angle I can do. Now, most of the stuff that's been published is more how to, yeah, when to, sure, where to um, stuff. But the stuff I truly enjoy is um, the why to, which would be yeah. like that. And part of that is the conservation pieces that I'm really concentrating on now more than than other because I just have more of a a drive for those. And I kind of think there's more of an audience yeah. for it. And, and maybe it's not a large audience, but I think it's an influential audience Sure, is what I'd say. Grad, grad school, you know, yeah. and I remember that the first, one of those required first year courses in grad, grad school was, God, what, well, I can't remember it, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but had something along those. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. No, I know what it, it was a methodology course and it was okay. taught by a guy, his last name was music and he was from uh, Duke university. And, uh, one thing he said, um, there's two things, if this is going to be your career, you mm-hmm. know, whether you're going into policy work or you're going into, uh, um, advising or you're going into academia, those are the three main things at the population research center. If you're doing those three, you better get into liking puzzles mm-hmm. and you better love to write and huh. you better learn to like to write because that's what you're going to be doing. And, uh, and I really took that to heart. Now, I'd already had writing experience and whatnot. But when you're doing a book that's, you know, kind of at that level, it's just a buttload of research. Mm-hmm. You're really researching. Yeah. Now, it might not be statistical research, which is what most of my, my ac- academic career, what mo- most of my academic career was. Um, but um, it, um, it, you still had to do historical research. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, the, the lit review that you do. That's one of the required pieces of a dissertation. You got to do this, you know, historical lit review. Um, and you got to basically have your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Yeah. And, uh, 
Um, and so that really helped me focus on and get me, it got me so comfortable with it. You yeah. know, I just, I got so comfortable with the regime choose on, on rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was giving this thing of, uh, examples, you know, you know, two persons per riffle on the Provo river. Um, and the piece was going to be about what they did with Wilson to South park, that section of river here that was just inundated by outfitters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody came up with a plan partly helped by the snake river fund to put together a plan to where we could limit that congestion there. And I also addressed what's probably going to happen on the Teton river here quite soon. Um, but so I talk about two people on, on, uh, on a riffle on the Provo. And I said, 120 boat trailers at $3 bridge on the Madison. Yeah. <laughs> well, $3 bridge, it's a walk-in access. Yeah. <laughs> and they published it. And it was like, wait, I think I meant Lions Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just, you know, it's just, it's something I don't make a mistake yeah. with in books because the kind of the focus is there where there's a, a certain deadline thing with the, magazine pieces and whatnot yeah. and, you know when you submit a pros proposal it's like yeah can we get into that in two weeks yeah like uh, yeah i guess <laughs> yeah, let me see what i can do do so, you think you'll ever write a story like i've like, contemplated i've actually put together you mean like a, a more well you mentioned like you wrote the story yeah and know, to me and, that's and, true like literature yeah yeah and that's what i i think james david duncan you know said you know 90 five percent of people writing in the fly fishing world they're not really writers mm-hmm. you know and and that's you know that's that's true of my case with what i write i'm you know more of a, a journalist uh i mean the books if you think about them the how to trade part. journals yeah. yeah they're trade journals yeah. um you know where you know folks like duncan and and prozic and who'd be another mcguane thank you yeah mcguane yeah. um yeah, those those folk. I mean, that's that's real literature, um, and I don't know if I could, but I've been kind of encouraged by some of the pieces I've submitted that have actually been uh, accepted. I've been uh, encouraged by you when people have questions about you know when, when people have read a certain one of my books and they actually they mention this certain part of the book. Mm-hmm. It's more of a why to. As opposed to how to, where to, yeah. when to, um, it's it's more of a story, and whatnot, and um, and so what I have done over you know the past few years, I've actually I wouldn't say I've typed up outlines, but but it, it is kind of an outline mm-hmm. of you know, um, you know why that you know when they built these levees, a lot of these levees on the Snake River, there's 26 miles of levees on a prime piece of the Snake. Mm-hmm. Why? Why didn't anybody do anything, do anything about it? And why? And then why did why did apparently a lot of guides said this place is gone. I'm out yeah. here, and they left. Um, and I've kind of started to write, you know, about about that to a certain degree, like fictional um, or non-fictional. Uh, that's non-fictional. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if I could pull off fictional. Yeah. That's that's just another. Well, it's level. funny because you you explaining that uh, you know when I took a little started and and left and had some time to myself um for the first time in a long time i was you know a couple of people had encouraged me you should write a book yeah and I, i'll never forget i was sitting in here and i was like i you really don't know how to write yeah and so i was like 
shit. And then at the same time, I was thinking up, you know, this. And so this is actually a result of, of that. And, and the desire to write. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great idea. Yeah. And it was like, well, I mean, what, what a way to, you know, do multiple things, but, but it, that was, it was, I don't know. That's, it's, it's interesting. It was no, this is, it's, it, you think about it. I mean, think about all those stories that you're tapping on with all your guests. Yeah. That's, you know, it, it's basically a verbal, verbal equivalent of, yeah. of writing. I'm excited to look up some of those pieces of your writing that I haven't read. And also that's a good reminder. I need to get, uh, we need to get your books in the shop. So I haven't done that yet. I've, got, I've had a lot going on, but um, we will do that. Um, okay. Good deal. I'll yeah. come in and sign every one of them when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, well. I've done that for shops before. Yeah, we should do it. Um, well, on a, uh, I know I've been taking up a ton of your time. So I do have just a couple more questions here before we uh, we wrap this up. And, and you know, you're, you're the, um, again, and maybe I say this too often, but that's that's why I, this is so important to me because this is, I mean, these are all stuff I wanted to know about your story and it is, we could keep going on and on and on, but it it's just, it's super cool. I yeah. mean, and I, I just, you think about it, man, the, the, the stuff you're collecting, I mean, this is, it's just, it's there now kind of for eternity. Yeah. And you know, this, that stuff's pretty damn, I mean, I'm a, I'm always turning to my uncle who's still alive, 84 years old, fairly spry, but you see him slowing down and his wife, um, you know, he was born and raised here in, in Jackson. My, my aunt was, was born and raised where Palisades Reservoir used to be. And now, you know, and then her family moved to Swan Valley where the South Fork is. I'm asking them so many questions now before, because I never asked my father those questions, and of yeah. course I was too young to really ask my grandfather. He died when I was uh, twenty-two. Yeah, and now it's just like it just seems super important. So I'm just trying. I'm personally trying to collect this information and from old guides. I mean, I'm yeah. asking John Sims questions all the time. Fred Stare. I'm asking these guys questions all the time. I mean, I, I. Uh, yeah, you know, Uli Piram, or you you probably know from the South Fork. I mean, I just the hundreds of questions I probably should have had. The amount of time we had face to face conversations. Yeah, and I'm like, I could have asked him so much. Yeah. about the history of the South Fork. Yeah, it's it's uh, and and the, the other part that's been super cool because I just uh, I'm doing it next is with my kids. Um, they're gonna have a snapshot because I'm gonna do I'm doing them once a year. And it's hysterical and it's fun. They actually like, they, they really get into it. And, but I mean, it would be pretty cool if we could go back and listen to ourselves, what we were like every year. I mean, so, and also, like you said, I mean, stories I've always wanted to hear. Don't we, we move at such a fast pace that it's so hard to sit down with someone. And so this, this provides it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, without and, question. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, not not stuff that you are writing or any of that. But have you have you been reading any good books recently, or do you do you read? Not as much as I used to. Yeah, and I'm I'm uh, I keep kicking myself for it. But um, you know, in terms of like what we were talking about, true. 
fly fishing literature, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that's what draws me, but it's, yeah. uh, um, but you know, like I did not read, um, you know, probably what I consider probably the greatest book in fly fishing, um, history, which is the river. Why mm-hmm. I don't read that until 2009, I think Yeah, and I was down in Costa Rica and read it. And, you know, so so many parts of it brought me to tears. I'm, I'm chilling there on a damn hammock yeah. <laughs> crying yeah <laughs> and uh um you know i read uh uh river runs through it and uh it didn't really hit me as mm-hmm. i you know what the hell yeah <laughs> get it and then jack dennis told me you know this this uh, is about the rest of his family and, and dies because of his wildness and then i took a relook at that book and it's like Oh, geez, I was missing the point of that book yeah. the whole goddamn time. Yeah. You know? Well, age does that too. You can read a book at a different yeah. age time and it, it yeah. totally means yeah. different things to you. Yeah. And you met you mentioned Tom McGuane. I mean, uh, The Longest Silence, that collection yeah. of short stories. After The River Why, that's probably for me the most influential uh, piece of fly fishing literature that I've yeah. I've read. And then there's other, other, The Habit of Rivers by Yeah, uh, and not Leeson. just uh, fly fishing, too. But do, yeah, do no, read... it, is, it is great. I mean, no, but the... do you read other... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yes, and they're mostly historical because okay. I was such a history buff yeah. uh, growing up. I mean, the uh, the book that got me into reading, and this is uh, kind of what, what... I was a... B and C student in English, and I, I liked English, mm-hmm. you know. But um, you know, I, I hated the books that we were assigned. I mean, just that you know, uh, I heard now will call my name. I fucking yeah. hated that book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, I liked. Yeah, you know, absolutely. but I mean, there were just so many books. I was like, this sucks. Nobody's yeah. dying. <laughs> you know, I want yeah. death in my books. I guess uh, at that age when I was reading history, we were assigned the most hated book in all of our high school. And it was called My Antonia by Willa Cather. And uh, it, and I went into it hating it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for spring break, uh, we left and we went down to Mexico and had a lot, lot of downtime. You know, went fishing, yeah. uh, hung out at the beach. And uh, I'm like, there's so much downtime. I was like, I'm just going to read. Or I'll read this book. And I made it through that. But it was... I hated the book so much going into it that I wasn't reading it. And then I yeah. started to read it. And it's just, it's this love story. It's the only love story I've probably ever l- liked in my lifetime about, you know, pioneer kids. Mm-hmm. You know, one coming, one was a, you know, a, a Native American, uh, not a Native American, but a, 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 you know, a white kid who was American. His mm-hmm. family was American from Virginia. They died. His parents died. He had to move out to his uncle's place in Nebraska during the pioneer days. And he's riding uh, in a train and then on a wagon um, with another family who are basically coming from Bohemia, coming from, hmm. you know, Hungary and whatnot. And there's a, a, a gal named Antonia. And he, uh, and it was just this incredible love story. And you, you, you get the feeling, you, you understand immediately it, she's writing about her own life. Yeah. And uh, I love that book so goddamn much that I basically read the entire thing a second time. Right afterwards? Right afterwards. Wow. On the flight home. I was so enamored with it. Wow. And uh, and I remember going in, uh, Mrs. Thorne, my 
uh, English teacher at the time. And I went in and I got back from spring break and I slammed that book down on her desk. And I said, I loved this book. Yeah. This book was awesome, <laughs> you know? And that's what really, that's what sent me into, you know, basically getting A's in English was wow. because of that. Cause I started to focus on that. But the great thing that gal I told you about, that was, uh, the sister of the girl I was dating. Yeah. Her and I, uh, she sent me an, like what I, what, I think is an original copy of it. Huh. He wrote this great book called Lee, the final years. And it just makes you fall in love with General Lee. Um, huh. It just, it's uh, and the admiration that the union soldiers had for him and how much the, um, how much the union, uh, the Republican party who were just so, and correctly so, had so much animosity for traitors, mm-hmm. which is what they were. They were traitors, yeah. in, my, in my view. Um, and he ended up, uh, and, and that's what kept General Lee from having his land taken and having his finances taken and all of that was all these union officers standing up and saying, we're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you take what generally built up um, because of this hatred that you have to him. He made a stupid blunder and a stupid mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should have a certain amount of admiration yeah. for him. And uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I don't take the Civil War. Northern boy, I think it was fought over slavery. I think that was the, the sin. Um, I think uh, uh, the Confederacy should you know, had to pay some type of price for what they did, but certainly not what they were thinking for some of these, these commanders and these officers. Well, well, since we've been talking, I've got a couple, um, one, one, which I would be interested if, if you did read, because my cousin recommended it, uh, who lives in town. And, um, I, I hadn't read a fictional book in a very long time and it's called the water knife. Okay. And so I started reading it and it took me like, like at least a couple chapters. I'm like, what is, what is going on here? But then I had to get my head around the fictional cause it's, you know, it's, it's a hundred years out, but it's essentially what you and I were talking about earlier. It's a fascinating book in the sense it's what happens, where, where does these water rights bring us a hundred years from now? Oh, cool. And so it's like a fictional story, but at the end of it, you're like, is this? this isn't that far off. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you, you can't travel freely between States anymore. So um, hey, and you can kind of, it's a, see some truth to that. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's a real possibility. Yeah. And, um, and then the other one, just because of your, you know, where, where you were, um, academically is, have you, have you ever read the book, the tiger? Mm-mm, no. So I'm reading it right now, but it's, um, so I'm not all the way through with it, but it is, it describes some towns in the far East Russia, um, these unique towns that, I mean, I went back immediately a couple of times and was like, cause the description of these unique environments where it's like, you know, you have the, the more tigers that live there. But you also yeah. have these crazy negative temperatures. You also have palm trees and bamboo. Like, Absolutely, I'm like, what yeah. the hell? I mean, I hope someday, <laughs> you know, 
that that whole mess gets figured out. But that, you know, and then obviously Courier being on here talking about his tiger incident and I had a tiger, you know, it wasn't an incident, but there was something going on in Bhutan. And, um, and then the last question before uh, I won't take up any more of your time. And I, and I ask everyone this and kind of narrow it down to who is, who is one of the most interesting people you've ever met? Um, not, not the, but you know, someone that comes to mind. Yeah. I've, um, uh, um, I, I think, you know, kind of currently just with what he's, he's, he's doing. I mean, you know, Carter Andrews yeah. and I, uh, um, I, I appreciate so much what he's, what he's, do, what he's been able to do. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to go from a guide here to make the commitment to fly fishing is going to be my life. And mm-hmm. I'm going to make a living off of this. And he's been able to do that. Um, and Jeff Courier, uh, those two are, are, just their, their inspirations because they're, they're literally truly making a living off of fly fishing yep. um, in ways that so many of us just, you know, we're, you know, we're, maybe we're kind of there. Um, maybe we're halfway there, but, um, they're really, really doing it. But the person who, and again, a lot of these are locals yeah. and whatnot. Um, you know, when I say locals are, they have roots here in this region. It's, it, it, it's really, really, really impressive. And that's all he's done is write pieces. He's written articles. He's never written a book. Yeah. And he tells me he can't write a book. And it just, that doesn't have that in him. But, um, boy, I, uh, um, he's just, He's he's always kind of been there for me. He's known my family for a long time. Sure. He just got inducted into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. He got yeah, the, the and, Isaac Walton Award. And, and then and, also another one. I mean, I yeah. The I, other one was uh, I can't remember. <laughs> Probably it, Isaac Walton Award, and then well, I, I I went over it on the on another podcast like right after it happened. I did. Um, you? Yeah. yeah, and then yeah, that's that's very cool. He, he's extremely inspirational, and he's. Um, it's cool because I wanted to do a project on the South Fork skiff and the history of that. Yeah. And that, you know, I don't know the details, but I, I kind of kicked that off. And now there's going to be some, I know he's involved, he's going to be doing some television shows like history stuff. Um, I know there's a couple he's going to do this summer, which is, which yeah. is really cool. And hopefully, hopefully someday the South Fork skiff project gets. Yeah. Well, it should, cause it was a, uh, it was a revolutionary boat. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no question about it. And, you know, I've mentioned some names here. I mentioned Carter Andrews. I've mentioned, uh, uh, Gary Wilmot, you know, Gary Wilmot's the wedge. The, yeah. The most predatory damn guide I've ever met. <laughs> and they both rode South Fork skiffs. Yeah. It was the, it was the, the greatest tool for the job that you were doing. Yeah. And, uh, I've got a great boat, uh, you know, it's yeah. a, a headhunter too. It's a wonderful boat, but it's not the South Fork skiff, Brandon Murphy's boat, the, uh, yeah. Drift, drift, drift boat, boat works. works. Yeah. Um, I haven't been in it yet, but I'm looking at it. And if there's anybody that knows boats, that's the man. Yeah. And, and when one hell of a damn guide, I mean, uh, but boy, I, uh, I, 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 that might be close to it. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. What, no, I've been in it with them a couple of times yeah. now and it's very well laid out. Yeah. It just, yeah. everything about it. I've just, from what I've seen. And then when I see it on the water, it's, there's a, a, a buoyancy to it. Yeah. And it, my boat's incredibly buoyant. Mm-hmm. His just seems to float. Yeah. And I do higher. think there's a transition, right? When people really wanted to stand up 
It's, yeah, it just, absolutely. It, it and just that's, that's the thing. Yeah. And look, the reason I guide out of a, a headhunter too is because you can stand in it. Yeah, and, exactly. And uh, people want to stand. And I can tell you when I get, knowing the qualities like I do of being able to sit down to fish, mm-hmm. when I'm in a stand-up boat, I stand up. Yeah. That's just, you know, kind of the way it is. Yeah. Well, listen, man, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been... Um, this has been awesome, fulfilling questions I've been meaning to ask you forever and just haven't gotten to. And, and, uh, I just, it's awesome. So, it, you know, thank you. Well, thank you. This is, this is absolutely wonderful. There's everything that, uh, your bit of paperwork said it would be. Would be. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. And thank you. Uh, just so the crew knows out there, we're drinking roadhouse brewing loose boots. Uh, which is fitting. And yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for the beers. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for making the time. Um, to find more information about Boots, head on over to bootsallen.com or on Instagram at bootsallen or Snake River Angler or Snake River Fund. For trips for- and blah, blah, blah. Awesome. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Permit to Think. My hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversation and stories from the fringe of societal norms. Be sure to subscribe and support on iTunes, Spotify, whatever platform you're on. For more information, head on over to the website at permittothink.com and also forward this show to anyone who you think might dig it. I am out.